MCU.html is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things movies, media, music, comics, and more, check out the Cage Club Network. That's cageclub.me. Hey everybody, I'm Nico. And I'm Kevo. And this is MCU.HTML, and we're finally here. I've been vamping it for weeks and months, and Captain Marvel has arrived. Yes, she has. I think the first thing we have to talk about with this movie is the incredible number of records it's broken. Kevo, I think you've got some numbers on the mighty Captain Marvel in all of her many ways. Yeah, though Captain Marvel has not been with us very long, she is already doing so many things it is currently the highest grossing film of 2019 which makes a lot of sense having broke a billion it is the ninth highest grossing superhero film of all time this weekend it just broke 25th highest grossing film overall bumping the dark knight rises out of the 25 highest grossing films of all time and leaving only aquaman currently sitting at number 20 as the only dc superhero film in the top 25 highest grossing films of all time meanwhile i think this brings marvel up to what is it i think it's six now in contrast dc has had an incredible domination of the television network side of superhero representation agents of shield while internationally successful is not the biggest hit over here agent carter only had two seasons and the marvel netflix line in its entirety was recently canceled while disney plus and hulu both offer a lot of positive future for it it's interesting how one company kind of got television and one company kind of got the movies yeah and doing very well in their completely separate lanes i also thought it was interesting when i saw that captain marvel had reached the ninth highest grossing superhero film of all time when i compared it with overall highest grossing films the ones sitting between aquaman and captain marvel are two transformers a lord of the rings and skyfall and it's really interesting to me the way that we qualify what is and is not a superhero film because incredibles 2 is actually above captain marvel right now it's number 15 overall and i think that's because superhero as a genre is sort of a misnomer you can have a superhero comedy, you can have a superhero drama, you can have a superhero thriller, noir. There's so many different ways you can take the idea of the superhero and experiment with it. Superhero stories are now just stories that include superheroes. I agree with you. I think it's odd that the Transformers films would not be counted as superhero films. It feels somewhat discrediting. I get why not Bond. Bond is not super. Oh, and I totally really understand that too. It's just funny to me how there's this little nuance between things. Technically, except for not wearing a mask, there isn't a huge difference between James Bond and, say, Batman. They both rely heavily on physical strength, different fighting forms, and gadgets as part of what they do. Not to mention, they're both, not to mention, both of their fandoms are terribly precious about who plays them. Oh, well, that's true. Well, We've been hyping it for months. I don't think there's a whole lot more we can say to kick this off, so let's shoot it over to the BTS. Yeah, sounds good. I wanted to start this BTS with a really interesting 3-2-1. So this is actually the third film to co-star Brie Larson and Samuel L. Jackson after Kong Skull Island in 2017 and Unicorn Store also in 2017. I know it was only recently widely distributed by Netflix, 
I think this past month, but it was originally debuted at the Toronto International Film Festival back in 2017. Wow, it's like all of their co-starring features take place in the past. Yeah, even if only technically. Yeah, that's really funny. It was actually Brie Larson who pushed for Fury's presence in the film for this reason, the fact that they had this pre-existing professional relationship. And I think it does show a lot on screen through their dynamic and their chemistry. They seem very comfortable with each other. They have such an incredible intensity and ability to also convey humor. It's something that I think is missing from some of the Avengers cast. There's these great moments of incredible romance between Paul Bettany and not the mama. Elizabeth Olsen, right. I just sort of hybridized all of the childhood chum. Like, no, she wasn't the Olsen twins, so she's not. So Elizabeth Olsen, they have incredible romantic chemistry, but I can't think of a moment where they're both in battle where I'm like, yes, this is it. This is the moment. There isn't a second that they gave us Nick Fury and Carol on the screen together that I wasn't like, yes, this is what I want. This is the this is the buddy comedy movie that the Marvel Universe has always needed. These are two strong, powerful people. And then you throw in Maria. That, that cast's chemistry was out of control. And it had to be easy to come into this chemistry with the two of them breathing so well together. Absolutely. I'm only sad that there is the possibility that we won't get more Captain Marvel and Nick Fury working together. I hope that we do. The number two on this BTS is that this is the second film of the MCU set entirely in the past and to be a prequel with the first being captain america the first avenger which if we will recall was also the last tentpole before a climactic avengers film with a credit scene made of footage from the avengers film and both of them involve nick fury as the point of contact for a captain i'm just saying and it's really nice symmetry with Captain Marvel, sort of, it seems, taking up the Captain mantle for the next phase of the MCU, most likely. And scrolls kind of look like the green skull, so it's all kind of there. Yeah, no, I see that too. This is also the second solo MCU film to break both 900 million and then a billion after Black Panther. And this is also the second film that Brie Larson filmed as the character of Captain Marvel. Oddly enough, she filmed all of her stuff for Endgame, leading directly into filming Captain Marvel after it. There's a lot more scheduling to be coordinated for Avengers, so it would make sense for that film to take precedence on the Marvel lot as far as everyone's concerned. And knowing how much those films are supposed to be interconnected, there is probably a lot of post for both of them that needs to be done simultaneously, or at least somehow in tandem, that it was important to get that footage. I do think it's really funny though, everyone spent a full year filming in character then, because everyone else filmed Infinity War directly into Endgame for about a full year, and then Brie Larson ended up filming Endgame directly into Captain Marvel. It's hard to fault the actors that say that as much as they've enjoyed this project, they can't help but realize that they just lost two, three, eight. 11 years of their lives to these roles and when you think about a guy like robert downey jr who only really makes big pictures while he hasn't done too much outside of iron man lately he also has the sherlock holmes franchise which is an altogether another large film franchise with action stunts and a big cast and other names he's opposite and it's just interesting 
how they're able to cram all of this filming that with all of these extreme schedules it baffles my mind yeah same interesting tidbits coming later having to do with the sherlock holmes franchise but for now let me move on to the number one on this three two one as everyone of course already knows that this is the first female-led solo film but this is also the first mcu film to have a female director first film to have both male and female directors first film with non-sibling co-directors who by the way are not a married couple though they did date at one time this is just a professional male female at least as far as i'm aware hetero pair who work together in hollywood i think that's pretty cool this is also the first film to have a female composer so there were a lot of firsts and a lot of ground to break on captain marvel and that also shows in the incredibly platonic relationship in the two leads a male and female seemingly hetero pair who managed to not just work together but thrive together this movie represents so many firsts for women not just behind the scenes but on screen and i think they've done a tremendous job pulling together this creative team and you know it's funny when you were talking about the non-romantic dynamic there between the characters you were talking about fury and carol but that same lens can be applied to the dynamic between veers and yonrog it's something i really appreciated on multiple watches of the film noticing the fact that even though he is an antagonist any relationship between the two characters whether it's positive or negative there isn't any sort of sexual or romantic component to their dynamic or really any dynamic throughout most of this film you have talos who has a family that he's getting back to and you have maria has her daughter monica but other than that there isn't really anything in terms of heteronormativity in this film they don't even go as far as to clarify who monica's father is so even the most heteronormative parts of the film the family units are mostly not defined by the mother-father pair. It's a very interesting way to define family in a film that is so clearly about friendships. You know, there was a lot riding on this movie. This was a really tricky one for them because they knew it being the first solo female superhero film from the mcu there was a lot riding on this one nicole perlman from guardians of the galaxy who had been involved in writing the script for this film early on talked a lot about how tricky it was and how they wanted to avoid just doing a quote superman with boobs situation and keeping the character in character while making her a more powerful feminist icon but also not compromising the story further of those things it was tricky for them because you can't let yourself completely be taken over by a political message when you're making a superhero film, but you also need to think about the larger implications of all of that. So it's no wonder that there were actually a ton of people who were involved in the overall script writing. And I think that search for identity that is so central to this film could have even been born of the search for the identity of the film in a movie that is so many people telling Carol what kind of person she should be, both men and women. It kind of makes sense to hear that behind the scenes, they had the same sort of drama trying to figure out who she was as a film and as a character. And it was a struggle to get here, honestly. It wasn't even until May 2013 that they even started talking about doing a female solo film. So five years into the franchise already. In mid-2014, Kevin Feige said that they were looking into a Captain Marvel film and that she and Black Panther had been the two characters that were asked about by the public more than Iron Man 4 or more than Avengers, what hadn't even been called Infinity War at the time. And it was only a month after that that Captain Marvel was officially announced. 
The Avengers are a team, much like the X-Men, that aren't ruled necessarily by their earliest members, but by their most iconic members. Carol didn't join the Avengers till much later, and for that matter, neither did Monica Rambeau, who would also go on to share the name Captain Marvel. But they're such definitive characters we associate with the Avengers. So, knowing that Black Panther, another Avengers mainstay, took so long to get here, and they were constantly hearing from fans, hey, where are they, hey, where are they? That makes a lot of sense to me as a kid who grew up on comics. And it's why I'm really glad that Nicole Perlman was involved in the early writing and planning stages of Captain Marvel because she had previously worked on Guardians of the Galaxy because she had come up through the Marvel writing program. She had worked on the MCU before, so she was familiar with that. She was familiar with the comics, more specifically with the cosmic element, which is really great. And it makes sense that that's why Ronan probably found himself in this film, as opposed to the Ronan that Hawkeye will be. And when we're talking about Maria, we don't mean Maria Hill, and we don't mean Maria Stark. So before everybody gets all the Ronins and Marias all sorts of screwed around, we mean Ronan the Accuser this film, and Maria Rambo this film. I can't think we'll mean those next film, but, you know. Did we ever meet Monica's mom in the comics for them to have named her Maria in this film? That's a tough call for me, Maria. That's a tough call for me, because Monica ran with the Avengers in the 80s and the 70s, and that usually meant that you appeared in a million books and everybody's solo title and you have a million offhand references. And there's a famous reference in New X-Men where Emma Frost mentions that she had a cousin Jocasta and everybody was like, oh, I wonder if that's the Avengers Jocasta who's a robot. And I'm like, I don't think Emma Frost's cousin is a robot. But then all of a sudden, all of the Emma Frost's wikis listed her cousin Jocasta, who we never saw, who never had a second reference ever. It's those sorts of things that sometimes people hang on to, and it's very possible that her mother was named Maria, and they wanted to use that, but I can't be sure. Canon gets tricky like that. My only point being, if not, that's one of those, why would you pick a name that's already so prolific in the MCU if you had a choice? But, you know, I guess the M symmetry, it's nice. My mom's named Martha too. Yeah, Maria is the Martha of the MCU, I guess. And that's fine. That's just fine. So after being announced as going into development, Nicole Perlman and Meg Lefebvre were announced as writing the screenplay. Meg Lefebvre was nominated for an Oscar for her work on the film Inside Out and also wrote the screenplay for The Good Dinosaur. So one really amazing Disney animated film and one that I don't think people remember. Sorry, Meg. Yeah, I did not remember The Good Dinosaur. Is that connected to Dinosaur in any way? No, that's that movie that had a completely different cast and a completely different plot and was completely recorded and then they threw all of it out and got a new cast and did a new movie. Oh, and I confused that with Newt, the movie that was 80% finished at Pixar that they threw out because they couldn't figure out how to make sexual reproduction for the sake of saving a species children-friendly. Yes, that one is Newt. Correct. Boy, we sure do have a lot to say about Disney. Anyway, about a year after the scriptwriters were announced, Brie Larson's casting was announced at SDCC 2016. Larson herself said that she was initially hesitant to accept the role, but couldn't deny the fact that this movie is everything she cares about and everything that's progressive and important and meaningful, and a symbol she wished she could have had growing up, which... Yeah, there was more than enough room in the superhero landscape for women well before they started getting the respect they deserve. Absolutely, and it was a desire to make sure that Carol stood out from male heroes that had come before her that led to the origin story of Captain Marvel being changed in the ways that it had. They were afraid that it would echo the DC film Green Lantern too closely. And this film was already going to get enough comparisons to Wonder Woman and Shazam that they didn't need to ramp that up any further. Oh yeah, absolutely. In... February of 2017, Perlman and Lefebvre got, as Perlman stated, their marching orders from the script, so apparently they parted ways. 
stating that one reason for the delay was figuring out where this film would fit into the MCU. They were still at least partially involved in the project up until Geneva Robertson Dwarette was hired to take over script writing. She had risen to prominence after being hired in 2015 to rewrite the script for the 2018 Tomb Raider reboot. I like hearing how many of these creators were also involved in other strong female-led projects. It's troubling that it almost seems like women are only allowed to work with women on female-led projects, as if a woman couldn't direct a male superhero. But if we gotta break the ceiling somehow, let's keep breaking it step by step. Although, after this and Wonder Woman, I think that elevator should just crash right through to the sky. And I think it probably will. It's funny that you mentioned how many female creators who work on other strong female-driven projects are involved in this because I read that the GLOW showrunners Liz Flahive and Carly Mensch also worked on the screenplay at some point, but they didn't seem to contribute enough to warrant screenwriting credit. Oh, so they can start a little club with Ed Norton. Ed Norton and that Stephanie lady from Thor. Yeah, although now she's got Toy Story 4 coming out, so I'm still not worried about her. Yeah, basically all that. Dwarret doesn't really have a lot of screenwriting credits other than that. Before this, she was originally slated to co-write Sony's Silver and Black team-up of Black Cat and Silver Sable, which I've mentioned previously on this show, having been affiliated with Thor writer Christopher L. Yost. She more has a ton of projects coming out in the future. She's going to be writing the screenplays for David Ayer's Gotham City Sirens film. She's going to be contributing to the upcoming third Sherlock Holmes film, along with Meg Lefebvre, actually. They're both part of a team of writers, like a whole writer's room that was put together by the producers and like Team Downey to write the next Sherlock Holmes movie. So that's pretty cool. That's a really interesting television-esque kind of Marvel Cinematic Universe way to put together a movie. It also makes sense. You want to get together a brain trust to do Sherlock properly in an era where every eight people are doing Sherlock. Yes, a lot of adaptations coming out from her. She's also working on a script for the newest adaptation of Dungeons and Dragons, as well as a screenplay for Artemis, which is a sci-fi novel by Andy Weir taking place in the late 2080s. Okay, I'm in. Yeah, a lot of cool, interesting, weird, fun stuff. Another person whose name keeps coming up in conjunction as having written uh, the screenplay, but I can't really seem to get full confirmation, is Jack Schaefer. There's some places that say that she wrote part of the screenplay and some that don't. If not, there's no shortage of work from her as far as the MCU is concerned because she is going to be the showrunner and is writing the pilot for the upcoming WandaVision on Disney+. Plus. I love how much Disney Plus is working to take people from within the Marvel Cinematic Universe and elevate them already. It's a good move. These people already know the characters and there won't be a learning curve. She also wrote at one point a script for the Black Widow film before being replaced by Ned Benson. A lot of these people, if they don't use you once, they want to use you another different place. Like the directors, Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck, who of course also contributed to the script, but they had previously been considered for Guardians of the Galaxy before ultimately finding work here. And again, there's that Nicole Perlman connection with Guardians. There really isn't another movie that you can tie this to. This really is a Guardians connection. Makes a lot of sense. It feels right. And I only wish I had more of the direct lines drawn between this movie and Guardians. So maybe some of the way Ronin and the bigger picture all came together and I understood what the accusers did. I mean, I've read it online. Now I know what they say the accusers did and how 
everything got to be the way it did. But I kind of felt like stuff was missing for all this stuff that kind of dragged out. And you shouldn't have to read stuff online to fill in those details. It's like there's a ton of stuff that explains the backstory between Return of the Jedi and The Force Awakens and who the First Order are and all of that stuff. And I didn't get most of it from those films. I shouldn't have to read a spinoff novel to understand what's going on in this movie. I shouldn't have to read a news article to know how the accusers got from 1995 to 2014 when we see them again with Guardians of the Galaxy. But back to these two. They have not done a single superhero movie before this, so this was a huge change of pace. Previously, they had done the film Half Nelson in 2006, which was directed only by Ryan, but written by both of them, starring Ryan Gosling, which earned him an Oscar nom. So Marvel just loves plucking up these obscure yet award-nominated people to do their shit. Marvel loves plucky award darlings. They do. Another film they did previously that I love personally is it's kind of a funny story. It's starring Kieran something. He was the son on United States of Terra. It was a really cute movie. It was Emma Robertson too. Other than that, they mostly have done a lot of TV work, directing several episodes of shows just of shows such as In Treatment, The Big C, Looking. Ryan was the only director on the gay hookup show Looking. Good for you, straight dude. Get it. And they also directed several episodes of The Affair and Billions. Showtime Darlings. Yeah, Showtime Darling. Another relatively unknown who was brought into this film is Pinar Toprak, the first female composer of the MCU. But, you know, no small potatoes. She won two International Film Music Critics Association awards before working on Captain Marvel. She previously did additional music on the Justice League film in 2017, Sci-Fi's Krypton in 2018, and the Pixar short Pearl that came out this year. It was the first of Disney's Pixar Spark Shorts, a program where employees at Pixar are given six months and limited budgets to produce short animated films, and the first one ever made was a cool allegory about sexism in the workplace. Good job, Pixar, good job. And speaking once again about, you know, how much family and camaraderie there is throughout all of these films and all these people working together, it was reported this month by Screen Geek that the film's directors had been happy had been unhappy with Toprock's work and that Michael Giacchino had to be brought in to replace her and Giacchino responded uh, by confirming that he'd been involved by giving feedback on Toprock's work while he was working on the score for Spider-Man Far From Home because as he felt he was supporting a fellow member of the Marvel family that was just something that he wanted to do for a first time major motion picture superhero action film composer to give notes on what they were doing as a senior composer and considering Michael Giacchino has like a go-get or whatever we said all the awards he's got I think it's really great that he wanted to mentor someone who is an incumbent composer yeah, there's a fine line between mansplaining and Gogurt recipient assistant, and I think he really does walk the fine line, and I'm really glad that he wanted to support her and then publicly supported her. Yeah, he specifically said that he thought she'd written beautiful theme and an inspiring score and only helped her work on a few cues, making it very clear that he did not write the score for Captain Marvel, and bottom line, Toprak is a fabulous composer and certainly doesn't need me, as he said. The only other BTS name before we go into talking about the film is someone that we don't really need to talk about because this is his fourth Marvel Cinematic Project. Ben Davis for the last time so far, is with us on the MCU. 
Previously, he had worked on Guardians of the Galaxy, Age of Ultron, and Doctor Strange. I don't have a lot of negative, like, no, I didn't like this or that, or I didn't like, I really did not care for the cinematography on this movie. I thought in 3D, it was just about impossible to tell what some things were, especially in the space sequences. I found in IMAX, it all looked really beautiful, but this was not my favorite cinematography. I get that. I really do agree. The only thing that made me excited about it was being able to recognize that name in the credits by now, with all the times that I have seen it, and knowing who works on these films, and being able to recognize these names because of the BTS that I do. I also think, once again, it's very funny. He His first MCU project was Guardians of the Galaxy. There's so many connections between Guardians and Captain Marvel. Makes sense. The cosmic universe is a big place with, it would appear, very few people. Yeah, this is even only the second time that we see the honeycomb-looking jump points in terms of interstellar travel. And with that, let's go from BTS to CM herself. I know I've been incredibly positive about this movie this entire time. The only really uh, thing I have about this film is everything up to Earth. Until we get to Earth, I don't love it. It's kind of dark. It's kind of... The action sequences are sort of generic running through space. I swear to God, the Kree ship looks like the lower decks of Deep Space Nine. There is something really underwhelming about a lot of this movie until we get to Earth. Yeah, I'm really going to agree with a ton, a ton of that. First things first, though, I'd be remiss if I didn't at least mention the touching tribute at the top of this film. It was a really nice surprise. It was really lovely. The Stanley Marvel Studios logo. I think it was really nice that it got to go here instead of before Endgame because I think that would have wrecked too many people. That also allowed it to be about this and not trying to make everything the last movie. It got to make the Stanley tribute here. And I really agree with all of what you're saying about the film not picking up until she gets to Earth. For me, it's even because I don't understand everything that's going on on Hala. It's not until, I don't know, like an hour into the movie or something when we finally get like point blank confirmation that she's been on Hala for six years. There were a lot of things that we knew going into this film, unfortunately, based on trailers, promotional images, things that you couldn't avoid. And generally, the fact that we know who the character of Carol Danvers is, it was a really cool and fun subversion of that expectation to have her start as an amnesiac who's working with the Kree, who believes that she is supposed to be one of them and slowly reveal her identity to herself more than us of who Carol Danvers is. But then we don't know at the start of the film how long she's been with them. It could have been six years. It could have been 10. It could have been six months. We don't know what they did to her in that amount of time to make her believe that she was one of the Kree. And that threw me off a little bit too much at the start of the film. I love that they pronounce her name Veers because if you had seen it written down V-E-R-S early on, you'd have been like, oh, Vers, Carol Danvers. I did exactly that, yeah. And I feel like you needed to not know who some of these characters were. And, like, they're just so interchangeable. Minerva's just the girl one. And, oh, right, Jamin Hansu plays the one that you recognize from Guardians. Then there's the blue one who's a Viking that, that is clearly comfortable with his sexuality and tells uh, other men that they're, relatively speaking, very handsome. And then there's, you know, Yon-Rog. 
who unfortunately is a name that is easily recognizable from the comics. Originally, it had been reported that Jude Law was cast as Walter Lawson slash Marvell, and Annette Benning had joined the cast in an undisclosed role. It wasn't until February of 2019, so a month before the movie came out, that their actual roles of Jan Rog and the Supreme Intelligence were confirmed. So going into this movie, especially people like Nico, who are more familiar with the canon, kind of knew immediately that he was going to be a bad guy. What's interesting, though, is the things they were still able to keep secret about this film, particularly the fact that Annette Bening had then taken on the Lawson role and ergo Marvell. Plus the fact that the scrolls aren't really villains. In all of the marketing, in all of everything they had been talking about leading up to this film, they had been saying the scrolls are the bad guys, and they're really very sympathetic characters, at least the small band that we meet in this movie. One of the reasons that the Marvel Cinematic Universe has been able to thrive in an era where adaptations are everywhere is because of some of the chances they take separating themselves from the Marvel comics. You still manage to give comic book fans like me a shock with some things. I did not see this interpretation of the Skrulls coming. I thought it was tremendous. And it really, you know, the Kree always suck. The Kree are terrible. They are a warlike, awful people. And every third Kree is a dick. All of the Krees we follow are heroes because they kind of don't go along with Kree assholery. But this made sense. Asshole Kree made sense. I just was not expecting super sympathetic scrolls. It was certainly an interesting choice and makes me wonder if it has to do with plans they might have for scrolls in the future. I.e. Young Avengers has a character who has scroll heritage who is very important to the story. Maybe they're trying to do something preemptive with that. I don't know, but it certainly is a very specific choice to have the first time that I think we've ever heard of scrolls in the MCU to have this small band be so sympathetic. I personally want to know how many people got dusted that are going to get replaced by scrolls. Who knows? Who knows where they're going next, man? I enjoyed seeing Carol train against Jan Rog before we saw her in actual combat because there's a very different atmosphere training where we get to see her and get to know her fighting style and seeing her in combat. I thought the combat scenes were a little dark, a little unspectacular, ununique, but Carol really manages to carry the film. The only other thing that I was kind of like, <gasps> was Annette Benning's first scene. As much as I love Annette Benning and I think her performance as Supreme War was incredible, I found so much of the, we gave you power, we can take it away. If you're not going to really talk about what the fuck that implant is, why is it there? There are times that she was a bit hammy. Yeah, I definitely agree. And it's why I'm glad that they expanded her role to include Wendy Lawson. I believe what I read was that she was originally not going to be Marvell, but they had her for Supreme Intelligence and it worked organically from there. It was certainly an interesting choice for those characters. I do see what you mean about Carol's fighting style not being super unique. I think the thing that makes her unique more is her power style and power signature, plus her personality. But in terms of fighting, yeah, it's sort of generic. And I'm not complaining. I'm someone who grew up loving Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and this certainly got me very excited watching. The only part of the opening of the film that I really enjoy is Carol's escape from the Skrull ship. I thought she really started to shine there. I did think the method of N-Media Res flashback storytelling was unnecessarily confusing. I understand making unique choices in the storytelling to try and create a different kind of narrative, but the disjointed way they told it did not, in my opinion, enhance the film. It didn't necessarily detract 
but I know that even as somebody who knew the material, I had to be like, wait, what? Wait, what? Wait, what? I definitely see where you're coming from. I enjoyed it a lot, and I think perhaps if the more boring aspects of the first half hour, the slower aspects that don't really add much to the character, if they could have perhaps instead been replaced with her struggling with that dual identity a little more, and her memories breaking through, it might have worked a little bit better. Overall, I really liked the confused memento-ish formula and format of this film where she's slowly piecing together who she is because like i mentioned there were so many trailers about this character we already knew so much about this character that a completely straightforward origin film would have just been utterly boring at this point and couldn't have offered anything to the marvel universe as a whole by creating a series of interstellar races that are locked in a philosophical legal and somewhat religious conflict over land they were able to create something larger than just peter quill runs through space fucking everything please please by all means i really love carol crash landing into every 1995 mini mall in the entire united states of america suburban landscape it was awesome because the touches they tried to put in i think it was a true lies poster actually yeah they were originally considering using the mask because it would look like a scroll and she could blast it but they went with true lies and we get the security guard who actually is a marvel studios lot security guard and has appeared in a bunch of stuff yeah and the radio shack logo like they went out of their way to make a lot of this feel really genuine but the movie doesn't kick off till nick fury shows up No, it really doesn't. I am so glad that if it is the case that Brie Larson fought to have Fury be in more of this film because he's fantastic. It's probably my favorite appearance of Nick Fury. And you know, it's funny. This would be the ninth film on his nine film contract. And yet I believe he is probably still going to be in Endgame and is confirmed to be in Far From Home. But when he renegotiated his contract for Iron Man 2, it was for up to nine films. And this is what reached it. And I guess he just still loves doing all this work. I also wonder if he has some sort of like secondary clause for cameos, like what he did in Endgame, if perhaps that cannot count against it. I don't know. I don't know. This also featured another cameo of a character that we have not seen in the MCU film verse since the Avengers in 2012, Phil Coulson. Looking great, looking young, looking digitally altered to look better than he looked when he was great and young. I don't know. I don't think the CG on Phil Coulson was great. No offense, Clark Gregg. I love you. You can still get it now. But his hair looked very painted on in a way that Sam L's looked much more natural. And of course, you're going to put more budget into Sam L. I especially noticed because in his last scene at the end of the film, when he's presenting Fury with the artificial eyes, I was like, you guys didn't even try to alter him in this scene, did you? He just looks like regular Clark Gregg. I'm going to be honest, I'm glad you brought it up here because that just gives me a chance to get it out of the way. I thought the, oh, is this where Fury loses his eye? Bit was cute once. Didn't think it was cute the next four times. It was just too many. Oh, this is when he loses the eye. And then ultimately, it's Goose the Flurkin. And like, that should have, an alien took my eye has should have come up by now. You know, I think they were going for cute and funny. Sometimes you swing and you miss with that. Some people enjoy it. Most people I have found do not enjoy it. That's fine. It doesn't mitigate how much I love him in most of the film. And I love his interactions with Goose the Flurkin, though. I thought that was really cute and funny. They still seem to have an amicable relationship as the film ends. So he forgave Goose. One of the things that makes this movie work so well is how incrementally it works once carol crash lands on earth 
she slowly begins to gain the trust and learn to trust Fury. They split apart once he gets to the scene and he's like, hey, I heard about a lady in a space suit blowing stuff up in a blockbuster. And she's like, hey, you might have heard right. I just whacked out that telephone. And then she's like, blast, blast, there's a man on a roof. And he gets in his car and he's like, come with me, Coulson. And Coulson's like, great, I'm relevant. And Coulson gets in the car and he starts speeding off. And Carol's like, I got to get on this bus or subway. What is it? It's a train. It's a daytime upstairs train. Upstairs train. Oh, no. Oh, no. No, you're keeping Oh, no. Oh, you're keeping daytime upstairs train. Uh, oh, no. So she gets on the upstairs train. So Carol starts kicking old ladies in the face, chasing a scroll because the scrolls crash landed on a beach, chasing her, having extracted the information from her head during her escape. And now Nick is also trying to chase after the guy that Carol blasted. And so we have two chases going on at once. Oh my gosh. <laughs> okay, but here's the thing. You're laughing at yourself for saying upstairs train, but do you know what really did catch me? When Scroll Coulson says to Fury, train's heading for a tunnel up ahead. I was like, look, okay, you know what? I understand that other alien civilizations have trains and tunnels probably, but it just felt so human in a way that I thought was a little bit too perfect for how awkward Talos frequently is throughout the rest of the film, calling Fury Nicholas, and when he's like, what, Panama? Oh, right, Panama. Havana, sorry. Havana. Like, he's not very good for how- (laughs) He's not very good for how natural that scroll was in that scene, to the point where it didn't make the fact that he was a scroll a surprise upon multiple rewatch, so much as, I don't think it works. Like, that- bugged me and then when everyone is pinning carol down for beating up on the grandma i understand you instinctively want to help the grandma she just did some like backflips and shit so maybe just don't get involved at all how frequently do people just not get involved at all in these things in these movies but here they do and they go after the one who's not the backflipping grandma in their defense, she's in a horrifying robo space suit, and they don't know what's happening. It's LA. Everyone dresses like that. This does also give us a really wonderful stameo for this film, where Stan is practicing the script for the film Mallrats. Apparently, Kevin Smith had no idea that that moment was coming and has been flipping out about it for the last month. He is so touched, so honored, so grateful, which is really cool. I would be too. Kevin Smith believed in comics being in the movies before other people did. And that's really important. Kevin Smith gave of himself to the comic franchises and comic medium. You cannot love his work or you can love his work. You cannot like his movies or you can love his movies. But the guy really did help make comics cool. He really did. And speaking of 90s culture, it is one of the things that I love the most about this movie. And I am sad that the next movie will probably have to be in the current timeline because there's just so many amazing references and gags here. I love every single time they use a computer and they have to wait for it especially when the black box recording is loading and she's like what are we waiting for it's really funny that she's just spent six years on Hala. she's not used to computers being this slow but the carol that left in 1989 even aol would seem unthinkable to her 
an unthinkable technology and how people react to it is kind of like a huge part of this film. I think that in some of the flashbacks, Carol is a little too, I'm flying this plane in outer space and somebody's chasing me and they're aliens and they can fire backward. She's like a little too chill about it. And I think Fury puts up the best, what the hell? All over the place when it comes to all of the future technology that he's introduced to via Carol. Sometimes a little bit too hard though, considering by the time Fury meets Tony Stark in Iron Man 1 in that post credit scene. It's been about 13 years. How hard must that specific 13 years have been for him that at this point in 1995, he's never heard of aliens. He's never heard of superpowered people. Your dad made the point of why doesn't he know about Hank Pym or some of the stuff that Howard Stark has been doing. He just clearly doesn't here in 1995. The government facility scene is really interesting because this is where we find out that Talos has simmed or replaced Fury's boss and they are trying to find out as much as they can about Lawson, this Dr. Lawson. Ultimately, they do come to find that Carol worked at this facility, was a part of this test pilot experience, and, oh God, S.H.I.E.L.D. is after them because S.H.I.E.L.D. is secretly currently being led by a scroll. And again, it's a place where we're shown that Nick Fury is a pretty low-ranking man here in 1995 when they're put in that holding facility. It's a really cute sequence where we see him do that little fingerprint trick. And don't forget, this would have been 1995 for that character, so he didn't see it on CSI or any of those. But he did probably see it on a Batman in the 1960s in which to get into a keypad-locked facility, Batgirl takes out a makeup compact and blows onto the keypad, which puts the fingerprints all over the numbers. And she guesses the right order on the first try! That's true, they did have some cute espionage shit as far back as that. This sequence also is one of the places where it really draws my attention to the fact that even though they did a good job of de-aging him visually, Samuel L. Jackson, he does still move like he's in his 70s. Anytime they try to make him run, he's got a very specific lope to him. Plus, like, when he's running up and down the aisles trying to find Carol and help her, and he's like, Veers! Like, that is not covert. No, you are attracting attention to yourself and her. You are not being a very good spy right now, Mr. Fury, sir. No, not at all. And, you know, the scene where Coulson lets them get away, it at first, for a while, was kind of rubbing me the wrong way. It felt almost like too much. But then when I really thought about it, that could have been any young idealistic agent. It's just the fact that we know Coulson is going to go on to become an important character. So when I thought about it from the perspective of Captain Marvel coming first, it's almost sweeter than if I try to think about it as a reverse engineered kind of thing. You know what I mean? I do. It makes him always a good guy from the beginning, not a good guy in flashbacks. And it made me realize I was being a little hard on that cute little cameo that they were trying to give. It could have been any random nameless S.H.I.E.L.D. agent. The whole point is that there are some that are in there that want to do good, that want to be heroes, that want to do the right thing. By the time they escape, they make their way to a farm where they pick up the last major character we need to get this movie rolling. Monica and Maria Rambeau really fill out the cast in a way that drives the narrative that this is about human beings in incredible situations home. And they're fantastic characters. I love them both. We weren't really sure what the heck was going on when we found out that it was Maria Rimbaud until we saw the movie and we found out that Maria was going to have a daughter named Monica, which kind of makes sense. I imagine the potential route is Monica is going to be an adult in 2018 who is going to work with Captain Marvel, but who knows? Who knows what direction they're going to go after this saga? Gimme Photon! Yeah, either way, gimme Photon. I really think adding a kid character here was smart 
because she was a character who could naturally info dump so much of Carol's history on her in a way that is very natural, the way that kids get excited about sharing things and how excited she would be to see Carol again after six years. And it's funny here that it's almost like her cameo is the reverse of Coulson's, someone young here who can be an adult in the present. We don't really get much time with the Rambau family, but what we get is definitely the emotional heart of this film. The friendship between Maria and Carol is more important than just about any romantic relationship they could have hoped to shoehorn in here. Because in each other, they see similar people who are still completely unique, down to their choice of hot-ass car to race in. There's something fantastic about the fact that these two women are, for lack of a better term, coded male. But they still choose to identify and associate with other women. One of them has a family. She still works on her airplane in her farm backyard. There is something definitive and powerful about the depiction of female heroes we're given in this film, in this short scene where these two women manage to find common ground, despite being aliens to each other. And then Talos comes in and is a completely unrelated character from who he's been for the last hour and ten minutes. Oh, I know. It makes me so mad. There's just this huge disconnect. And I just don't get why. It was a very strange writing choice to make him go so hard early on in the film. It just feels like one of those things like you always say that maybe it came from a different draft and they forgot to connect all the points in the end. Yeah, this definitely feels like Talos is a supervillain for an hour and pretty sympathetic for the rest of the film. And a character that I think is getting a lot of great responses from people and clearly got great responses from the production team themselves because he is one of the visual references to Pulp Fiction and Samuel L. Jackson, the moment where he is sipping on his milkshake in that cup that was put in as a Pulp Fiction reference. So clearly they liked the character enough to give him that. For my money, he is a more genuine Yondu. He is exactly who he is. And he has this beautiful line later on, which wrecks me. When Carol's like, I literally can't believe I've been fighting a war that's been killing children who were little more than immigrants seeking asylum after their world was destroyed. And he just comforts her. He's like, we've all done things in the name of war. I've got blood on my hands. And I'm just like, oh my God, best friends. He's such a great character in the second half of the film. And the delivery, the performance is also amazing. When Carol is like, still not sure and saying, I can't give you this thing. You're going to use it to destroy us. And the exhausted way that he says, we just want a home. He hasn't even told her that he has a family yet. All he's told her is that there's refugees that need help. So he's still protecting further secrets from Carol and is even then so genuinely emotional in front of her. The black box sequence opens up all of the questions of the film. In fact, once the black box sequence happens at about an hour and five, an hour and ten minutes in, it's hard to imagine that there's still half the movie left because the other half of the movie is basically just a big fight against Yon-Rog. Yeah, he has his extensions through his Kree kill squad. I don't remember if their squad has a name, but that's what I'm calling them. But it's 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 mostly just them as extensions of him and him trying to get Carol back, yeah. I really appreciated that there were still yet pieces of the mystery to be revealed once we got to the black box sequence, though. There were a lot of things that you could piece together and glean from early on. I'm pretty sure that during one of her flashes, you can kind of tell that the scroll fire on her that she sees is actually on rog i believe i remember seeing that flash at one point so that was kind of tipping that hand a little bit too early but there were still really cool things that were revealed during that sequence and they still managed to get in so much humor at this point 
like the whole science officer thing and it being in space and the kind of cheeky attitude when Yonrog shoots the science officer being like, nah, it's my blood. That whole bit, like they still managed to get some like not overly dramatic, the whole world is ending moments in there. And I really appreciated that. It gets me every time. Carol was transfused with Yonrog's blood. Does that like work biologically? From what I remember, they used Cree bio stuff to fix Coulson on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. So I don't really know how all of that ultimately panned out, but it seems weird. Your your blood is literally different colors. I don't I don't know that you're supposed to do that. Everybody's made by the Celestials. Okay, yeah, sure, sure. I really love how we keep being like, oh my god, you guys, it's 1995 in this movie. But the second they get to the space station, it's 1987. Mm, mm-hmm. And that makes sense. That is exactly what it would be. It's also 1941 because we are seeing a device for the first time linearly since that time. How did you feel about this Tesseract reveal? I was actually really happy that they decided to move a little bit further away from a lot of the things that made Carol unique in the Marvel Universe because the cinematic universe is its own creature and we shouldn't be forced to hold with origin stories that came 40 years before these films. I actually liked making it the Tesseract and that gives us an end to how she can be so powerful against Thanos. Yeah, I agree. Unlike Vision or Wanda... Her power does not come from the Mind Stone, but rather the Space Stone. So I don't know how different that will end up making it. You know, part of me feels like, why? Why did you do this? I more wonder what happened to it between Howard Stark finding it at the bottom of the ocean and Wendy Lawson Marvell coming to work with the Tesseract. Like, how did she secret this thing away? I'm curious, but it's not exactly a whole because if anything, it ends up right back in Fury's hands for him to pass off to Selvig in 2012. And what I might even refer to as Harry Potter syndrome, they keep trying to make Captain Marvel so much more powerful every scene, and then they need to keep cutting her down the next scene. I really found the idea that Yonrog and his crew could get the drop on Carol at this point on the space station kind of eye-rolly. I was happy with everything that came out of it. Maria getting an awesome scene where she showed off she's just every bit of superhero Carol is, even if she doesn't have the tea kettle hands. I enjoyed Carol kicking the ass of every Kree warrior in her path. I also really like the Ronin stuff, even if I have a million questions, but before we get there, Kevo, Space Station, Carol, Captured, Breaks Free, talk to me. I see what you're saying. If it didn't happen as fast as it did, I would have a bigger problem with it, but from them showing up to her being very very quickly knocked out because there are refugees being held at gunpoint. They do get the drop on her very quickly, and it's the only excuse for why they are able to take her on the way that they do. Someone should have been paying attention for these guys to show up. Someone should have thought they were going to follow them, but that's fine. That's none of my business. I really enjoyed the sequence with her against the Supreme Intelligence. The a little more funk, a little more attitude from the Supreme Intelligence now that it's got some less jumbled memories uploaded from Carol. It was interesting. Parts of it were silly, like the fist stuck in the middle of Annette Benning's face. But I thought Annette Benning gave an incredible performance. Mm. So many Marvel villains come off so, you know, with a box of Tesseracts! And she managed to come off really like, it felt like she was trying to wear Carol's memories now. The first time we saw her, she was just part of Carol's mind. This time she was like, ooh, I'm perverting something you love and it feels so good on. It was great. 
Yeah, and then the sequence of Carol finding her strength with all of her memories was really lovely. The score on that was amazing. It really reminded me of the series finale of Buffy when all of the Slayers were being activated. You know, very find your strength. Unfortunately, I feel much like I'd mentioned earlier, all the glowing stuff was made less dramatic by its overuse in trailers. I feel that way later with her flying around too. It's not as big a dramatic reveal if you use it in every single commercial. We didn't suddenly forget we were watching the movie that we saw the trailers for while watching it. I do think the point I kind of hit where even I was like, okay, she's so powerful and I love that. But I am a little concerned after she throws that torpedo back at the accusers blowing up all of their missiles and chasing them away. I just don't know where Carol's next challenge can come from. Obviously, she's going to be a great match for Thanos, but there was nobody in this film that was even a match for her. It took a space armada with enough explosives to destroy a planet to give her a challenge. This is going to be some really interesting storytelling, and they managed to keep her a person the entire time. You know, I wonder if they're going to keep her at this power level and try to work around that limitation or rather lack thereof or if perhaps endgame is going to see her having to sacrifice some measure of her power so that she can destroy thanos or death or whatever who knows what who knows how this movie is going to end but maybe she'll have to depower herself a little so that won't be as big an issue going forward i'd be disappointed because i think it's a really interesting challenge and question as to who she can possibly face next after this and after Endgame and after we've seen all that she can do. And on a similar note, it's why I'm really glad that we got to see Maria show off her piloting skills and take on Minerva and be a hero in her own right as the superhero sidekick basically of this film because we don't know if we're going to be able to see her in the future narrative of the Captain Marvel line or if she's going to be replaced by her naturally aging daughter Monica. So it's really awesome that for as little as we might end up getting of this character, we still got a ton of her here in this film and a lot of amazing moments for her. There's just about nobody in this movie that I don't think stood out. Monica and Maria managed to get so much personality and so much power whether it's monica's incredible kindness saying the scrolls can stay with her and she immediately accepts this alien child as her friend or it's maria saying the only reason they're not welcome to stay with her is because they wouldn't be safe i mean maria sets a place for these aliens at her table she is amazing fury is amazing Talos is even amazing. I actually just love the parts of this movie more than I actually love the movie, but that's still enough to make me love the movie. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of really great relationships. A lot of this film is about forgiving people as you come to understand them better as long as they are trying to be a good person, which is the opposite of Yonrog here. Even though Jude Law gives a really amazing, dynamic, almost compelling performance at times, he, in his own mind, seems to think that he is genuinely doing what is best for Veers and for the good of the Kree Empire. It's just that's not what she feels is good for her and that's ultimately who needs to decide it, not him. And that's why the confrontation between the two of them at the end of the film is so great. He doesn't get to decide the terms of what is acceptable and what is good enough for her and she doesn't need to prove that to him by stooping to his level. And that even takes it a step further because something I've always thought is when people are like oh but beat them at their own game that's so much more satisfying no beating them at my game is the best and that's how carol acts carol wants everybody to know this is her game now 
And that's how she flies off into the night sky on her own terms. I think it was a really interesting, odd choice to not end the film on Carol when it is Carol's film, but it's one of the ways in which all MCU films are part of a larger whole, and this needed to lead us into Avengers Endgame the same way Captain America the first Avenger did. Because this movie isn't just about Carol, but it's about the effect Carol can have on the world and everyone around her. The universe is changed because of Carol's actions. Even if we didn't end on Carol, we ended on the world she saved that would forever be different because she chose to do so. And how do you feel about the retcon slash reveal of the Avengers initiative being named for Carol Danvers? I'm actually really cool with it. I also enjoy that they call it the Protector Initiative. I also like that we don't see him type it. You know what he's typing. We all know what's happening here. And making it too obvious is just going to lay it on a little bit too thick. So I guess now we talk about that credit scene. Uh, As far as I am aware, it is directly lifted from Endgame. It was directed by the Russos themselves. An interesting note right off the top is this scene only includes confirmed safe from infinity war earthbound avengers so steve natasha bruce and Rhodey, people that we all saw survive the battle of wakanda so in a way this is doing the most they can not to have there be any spoilers in this film for the one that comes next i look forward to comparing this to the actual final scene then yeah as we've seen previously a lot of times there is an enormous difference between what we see in an included post credit scene and what we ultimately get in the film that it comes from i also think it's really cool after the ambiguous tag following ant-man and the wasp with the question mark wondering if they will return here we get a definitive declarative statement captain marvel will return in avengers endgame and i almost think the word return is underwhelming it should say captain marvel has coming to dominate avengers endgame thanos <laughs> hide your balls because she's about to take them from you and that's how i like it i don't even want to start talking about endgame because we're gonna have an entire episode dedicated to the endgame pregame coming up next until then kevo where can everybody find you online you can find me on twitter and instagram at kevo really k-e-v-o-r-e-a-l-l-y or you can find me on our brand new facebook page husbands talking more or less you can also find my work and nico's work along with some other really awesome queer artists at kidriotcomics.com where we produce an inclusive and diverse superhero comic don't forget to check out our other amazing shows on this network like x is for podcast where we along with our boyfriend jonah and our best friend kyle examine the x-men comic book franchise starting with giant size x-men number one and make our way forward through the misadventures of marvel's merry mutants or now and again we're along with my childhood best friend I examine now, that's what I call music, and see how it reflects pop music. I'm also available on Instagram at NicoAction, N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And if you're online, go to the Patreon and shoot a couple dollars toward keeping the network running. All right, so until it's time to put that gauntlet back on and shake the world apart, we'll see ya. Take care, true believers. (laughs)